Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, Keith's joining us to talk through the AUKUS deal and whether it has consequences for Australia when it comes to nuclear proliferation. Hi, Keith. Let's start with the basics. What is AUKUS and what's the big new development? So AUKUS stands for Australia, UK, US. It's an enhancement of what was negotiated in the early 50s about the ANZUS deal. ANZUS was Australia, New Zealand and the US. Negotiated a time when the United States wanted to conclude a peace treaty with Japan and there was still a lot of suspicion about Japan in Australia and New Zealand. And so those two countries would only agree to the United States negotiating a peace treaty if it also negotiated a defence treaty with those two countries in case a resurgent Japan caused more problems in the Pacific. Remember, this was only six years after the end of World War II. The treaty became inoperative in the mid-1980s when New Zealand went down the path of being a nuclear-free country and would not allow nuclear-powered vessels into New Zealand ports. And New Zealand has held on to that policy. I used to give talks in New Zealand, and I was struck by, if there's one thing that united New Zealanders, it's really their hostility towards the United States. Yeah, right. It's a hostility that I would have noticed in Britain in the 1930s, this idea that America's brash and a bully and lacking class. And so they used to look down on the Americans. <laughs> so for a variety of reasons, you would have people saying, well, look, we're better off without answers. We don't need ANZUS as a way of defending this country. So really, that treaty fell apart, really, although Australia never mentioned that because we don't want to scare Australians because Australians are just so anxious that there is what they think defence protection by the United States. So that's why we now have the what are called OSMIN talks, Australia and the United States ministerial talks, which take place each year, and defence and foreign ministers go between the United States and Australia, alternatively. Mm-hmm. Now, AUKUS is really a way of re-establishing much more of a defence connection between the United States and Australia. And for me, what was fascinating, because I I lived through this, is that the government issued an advisory saying that they were going to have a big foreign policy announcement. So I remember being called into Channel 7 for this announcement. It was an early morning announcement between Scott Morrison, who was then the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who was then the British Prime Minister, and President Biden, who couldn't remember the name of Scott Morrison. Oh, we remember <laughs> that, that fellow one. down under. Yep. <laughs> this took us all by surprise. Right. There'd been no prior warning that this was being negotiated. Mm. And part of the deal, the bit that really got the attention in Australia, was that they would cancel the French submarine deal and would therefore buy American submarines Mm. in the short term. And then in the long term, the UK, US and Australia would work together in a whole new generation of submarines, which could well cost something like $30 billion over the next 30 years. So the politics of this, I think, was that Scott Morrison was hoping to be able to fight a general election on defence. 
Traditionally, the Liberal Party does well at defence issues or terrorism or whatever and hope to split the Labour Party because Labour Party always falls apart on defence issues. Yeah. You know, you've got some that are saying, we don't want to have more defence treaties and you'll have others who are saying, oh, yes, we do. And full marks to the then leader of the opposition, now the new Prime Minister, because he was able to be able to keep his party united and they neutralised this issue Mm. by saying, yes, we agree. Yes, and Let's so this, this is Scott Morrison's election commitment, which is going to cost us $300 billion. It'll be more than that because defence equipment always goes over budget over time. And it was neutralised by the Labor Party saying we will support that. So suddenly this car key election, as they're called, an election fought on military matters, just fell apart. Mm. And, of course, Scott Morrison lost quite substantially in the next general election. And so what we're left with is this election deal which is going to haunt us for decades to come because the Labor government now in office has very much decided to continue AUKUS. I think part of the problem for Labor is that they would have to continue AUKUS because they'd promised in opposition that they would do so. Mm. And they don't want to get a reputation for breaking promises. So in a sense, Scott Morrison has got them over a barrel and it's going to be a very expensive barrel for the taxpayers. So for the three countries involved in AUKUS, in the case of Australia, it meant that we were able to reinforce our desire to be in the good books of the United States. The United States liked the deal because it was further evidence of what President Obama called the pivot to Asia. In other words, that America has been too bogged down in European and Middle Eastern affairs and the so-called war on terror and wants to concentrate more on the looming threat as they see it with China. And the United Kingdom came in on this because the United Kingdom has left the European Union but doesn't know what its foreign policy is. Of course. So it's able to say, well, we're now going to return east of Suez, to use the British expression, Mm. and there'll be ships, British ships sailing around. The problem is the British defence budget since 1991, uh, at the end of the Cold War, all those budgets have been cut back substantially. So I'm not sure how much money they're going to be able to plough into these ships. But anyway, that's how the UK enjoyed it. As I say, brilliantly negotiated, completely out of the limelight, no hints that this was being done, including, of course, the French being told by (laughs) by a text message, we're out of that deal with you guys, which has caused no end of angst. I've just been doing a TV programme in China and the journalist raised a question with me because Macron has been in China, mm. improving relations with China at a time when America is saying pull away from China, decouple, to use the expression. <laughs> Here we have Macron, who's wanting to improve relations. And the journalist put to me that perhaps one of the reasons why Macron is talking about joint military operations with China in the South Pacific is revenge for the Australian cancellation Oh, well, if it is, he can hold a grudge. (laughs) So the thing that came out recently was talking about, you know, these three subs that Australia's going to buy and the fact that they're nuclear-powered. Now, that's raised questions on whether that puts any of us, including Australia, in breach of the Nuclear Proliferation Treaties. Could you give us a bit of an overview of what they are and who's involved? And the article I found on this is the conversation, and it's by Lauren Sanders, who's at the University of Queensland, if AUKUS is all about nuclear submarines, how can it comply with nuclear non-proliferation treaties? So the background to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is that, and of course I always point out that this is a treaty very much influenced by the Americans who will always use a paragraph where a sentence will do. 
So instead of talking about stopping the spread of nuclear weapons, we talk about the non-proliferation, mm-hmm. a nice long word. <laughs> so that's the MPT. The person who came up with the idea, I worked with him, right. beaten on a committee when I was a teenager. I was representing the UN Association's youth movement. And he argued that we should have a treaty whereby people or countries with nuclear weapons agree not to give them to countries without them and countries without them agreed not to try to acquire them. So this was the the 1960s and at that time we were speculating that by the year 2000 there could be as many as 30 nuclear weapon countries in the world, including Australia, Canada and Sweden could all end up acquiring nuclear weapons. So this Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is one of the best treaties ever negotiated. And most of the world's governments are bound by it. There are certain exceptions. India is one. And so the countries that are possessing nuclear weapons agree not to give nuclear weapons to other countries that don't have them. And countries like Australia, Canada, Sweden that don't have nuclear weapons agree not to acquire them. There was quite a debate in Australia. In fact, there is a new book out we ought to look at because, mm. you know, we, we built Lucas Heights here in the southern part of Sydney to handle nuclear weapons as well as nuclear power. Nuclear power is a real problem for the MPT because a lot of countries were sold on the idea that nuclear power is going to be the energy of the future. You know, the Americans used to talk about nuclear power being too cheap to meter. In other words, the cost of producing the nuclear power would be less than the cost of actually putting a meter in a home and employing somebody to come and check and issue a bill. Well, that's obviously turned out to be complete nonsense. The country that's done the best in terms of using nuclear energy is France, and they, of course, have developed nuclear energy alongside their military use of, of nuclear energy. And so it's very difficult to disentangle what is truly a military cost of nuclear energy in France from the civilian power stations. So the MPT had this deal in it over nuclear weapons. In regard to nuclear peaceful uses of nuclear energy, that was still permitted under the treaty. In fact, there's a commitment for countries that have, well, in our case, uranium, to share at a market cost, to share that uranium or other nuclear equipment. I've got to say there's a little footnote here that when the countries working in Antarctica created the Antarctic Treaty, which was a few years ahead of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, they banned the storage of nuclear waste and the deployment of nuclear weapons in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So you weren't allowed to put nuclear waste down there, but you were allowed perhaps to have nuclear power. Right. So the Americans at a place called Nuki Poo. <laughs> that was on purpose. <laughs> built a nuclear power station but could never get it to work. Right. So it's perfectly legal to build the nuclear power station, but suddenly as you decommissioned it, you had to remove it. Right. Under the terms of the treaty because mm-hmm. it was nuclear waste. You yeah. can't have nuclear waste at the South Pole. So the cost of decommissioning that nuclear power station was more than the cost of setting it up in the first place. But this was the United States honouring the spirit of that treaty. Sure. Uh, so it shows how countries can at times obey treaties and, they, and the Americans certainly followed that provision of the Antarctic Treaty. Another provision within that treaty is, the, again, under the context of the peaceful uses of nuclear energy, is PNE, peaceful nuclear explosions. Oh, well, well I, hang on. 
<laughs> Rewind, explain that. <laughs> so a peaceful nuclear explosion is when you use a nuclear explosion to clear a lot of territory or whatever. So Lang Hancock, who was um, an expert on developing mineral wealth in Western Australia, wanted to use a peaceful nuclear explosion to create a harbour in Western Australia. Okay. So you just blow up part of the coastline. But that never went ahead. So don't forget, Australia's been involved with nuclear energy since the British started testing Mm. on Australian soil. But by this time, by the time that Lang Hancock wanted to blow up part of the coast of WA, people were very suspicious about nuclear explosions. So I, I don't think there's actually ever been a peaceful nuclear explosion, but it is permitted under the treaty. Hmm. It's interesting. Thanks for listening to Global Truths this week as Dr Keith Suter explains the AUKUS deal and its possible global implications when it comes to nuclear weapons. Now, you know, you've explained to us kind of non-proliferation and all of that and these submarines won't have nuclear weapons but they'll be nuclear-powered. Is there a distinction in the treaties that allows for that kind of difference? Well, this is why there is a controversy between China and the three countries in AUKUS. China is saying this is a violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The three countries, Australia, United Kingdom, United States, are saying, no, the submarines will be nuclear-powered, but not nuclear-armed. And this article by um, Lauren Sanders endorses that point of view that it is legal, providing they just remain nuclear-powered rather than become nuclear-armed. It's not a violation of the NPT. Mm -hmm. So she has no problem with that, providing they just remain nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed. But China doesn't agree, does it? China doesn't agree. It's raised it at the UN. It's made all sorts of complaints, but so far those complaints have not got very far. We know what the NPT is. We know what it kind of allows. How is China then arguing that it goes against the treaty? Well, because it's its interpretation. It's as simple as that. And is that the problem with those kind of documents? Oh, well, it's always, you know, well, that's why you employ lawyers. They look for gaps in laws. Sure. And that's what the Chinese are doing here. They're saying that there is a gap and we think that those um, nuclear-powered submarines are going to be illegal under the NPT. America and Britain can have nuclear-powered submarines. There's no problem there because they're the original big five, so to speak, who have nuclear weapons. But the problem is with Australia. Australia shouldn't be acquiring the nuclear energy that's involved. So I don't know. Dr. Lawrence Sanders assures us that it's all okay under the NPT. But of course, if if you're opposed to AUKUS, and China clearly is, because China can see that AUKUS is designed to um, contain China. It's not designed to deal with Russia, which is basically a land power. It's to deal with China. And so AUKUS is aimed at China, And China's view is that you try to make life as difficult as possible for those people who are making life difficult for you. Let's say uh, Australia was found to be in breach of the treaty. What happens? Nothing. Yeah, right. This is the weakness of the treaty. It would then go to the UN Security Council. Problem is the UN Security Council is dominated by the United States and United Kingdom. They're two of the five countries that have the veto power. So it'll be killed in the discussion at the UN Security Council. There might be hostile resolutions adopted elsewhere in the UN system, but they will not be binding. So they might get something out of the International Atomic Energy Agency or the UN General Assembly. I think it's unlikely, but those possibilities exist. But in the UN Security Council, it just gets vetoed. 
by the Americans and the British. So what does China have to gain then from kicking up a stink? Well, I think it's it's alerting, keeping the discussion going, alerting people about the risk of AUKUS and, you know, in the big sweep of things which we look at from time to time, the American political class is divided as to how you deal with China. Are you clearing the decks ready for a war or are you getting ready to perhaps improve relations with China? This is why the Macron visit to China has been so interesting because the United States is saying we want to ramp up the pressure on China and Macron is saying, no, let's deal with them without all this dangerous rhetoric and we will try to improve trade with them. So you do, even within the Western countries, have alternative views of how you deal with China. Returning back to, you know, the nuclear-powered subs, what sort of need is there for this technology? Why was it chosen above some other type of submarine? Why do we need submarines? Mm. Lauren Sanders, in fairness, doesn't address that issue. She's only looking at the legal issues. But yes, you've got the big picture question, why do we need those submarines? Will they still be relevant in 30 years' time as the latest versions then come on board, so to speak? Will surveillance technology have improved so much that you can't hide at sea. The argument about nuclear power, as distinct from diesel engines, is that you can stay submerged for longer. Right. But who knows where we'll be in terms of spy technology and what you can observe. Even, you know, in the 1960s, the Americans had satellite technology that enabled the Americans to read the headlines of a newspaper from well up in the air. Mm. That was an awfully long time ago. So who knows for the improvements, so to speak, in uh, spying technology. It may well be that the submarines don't have that much of an advantage. And for me, the basic question is, do we really need these submarines anyway, unless they're going to be part of a junior partnership to the United States? Well, I think it's a question quite a few people will have after listening to this episode. (laughs) Keith, thanks for your time. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.